This morning as we continue on, I just want to share with you that the love of God is deeper than, right? Than any ocean. And as I listened to this song, as I sang those words with you, that was a beautifully and eloquently written song about pen and ink and paper. And and all of that is insufficient to describe and to communicate how wide, how deep the love of God is for us. This morning, this is what we're talking about. The love of God. Now we're going to start in Hebrews 4, and really I have kind of two titles. What your notes say is, would the loving God please stand up? And so that's we're running with that. The reason I have the sympathetic God is because we're going to keep that a little bit more concise to the Scripture that we're going to look at in a moment. But it really, in essence, is describing a loving God. Before we get there, I have a question for you. How many of you like game shows on TV? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't really get a lot of TV time. And usually if I do, I'm tuning into a sporting event that disappoints me and leaves me crying in the fetal position. But, you know, there's some, there's some people that really love like the old time, the old time game shows, right? How many of you remember $10,000 Pyramid, our Egyptian community? Anybody out there? Right? Sorry, I'm sorry, I couldn't help. Uh, how about Hollywood Squares? Anybody used to be an addict to Hollywood Squares? Yeah, some of you guys. Um, uh, Fernando, who is your favorite celebrity in Hollywood Squares? There's too many of them. There's too many of them. Because he's, he's a safe and wise man. Because if he names somebody, then that's going to characterize Fernando, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of them. Password Plus, you guys remember that? And so what they would do is they pulled tricks on us, right? There was password. And then when they started going down, they'd have password plus to recapture the, the community. The one I want us to think about this morning is to tell the truth. Remember to tell the truth? This was a game show where they would bring out three contestants and they would have a panel of four or three celebrities. And so the celebrities had the opportunity to ask questions from each of those three panelists. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to get to the truth of who really is this person. And they had some background information by the host. And and so their challenge was to match the answers that they heard from the individuals to what they knew about who the real person was. So this morning, we're going to kind of borrow from that idea. I, I want you to kind of imagine this, if you could. Imagine you're it to tell the truth, and it's all about, would the loving God please stand up? All right? And that was the end of the show, right? You know, at the end, the host would say, would the, you know, would the true Amanda Bynes please stand up? We're still not sure who that is, but out walks Jesus, Moloch, and Baal. Could you imagine that? I don't even know how Moloch and Baal walk, but imagine those three. And, and so the, the question today by our host is, Would the real God please stand up? And so this morning as we look at that, think about the vast array of answers that would be our subject today. How would you be able to ascertain who the real God is? You see, we all worship different gods 
or idols, and mankind has had that proclivity their entire existence, haven't we? The challenge for you and I and for history is to say, who do we want to be God? And why? Why is a person or why is God qualified to be God? Why would someone serve a God that is not so godly? This morning, we're going to look at how to define that. So imagine all three claiming to be God. How would you determine which one is different from the others? The attributes, right? If you're, if you're trying to figure it out, would you not try to think of the attributes? You're matching the person, you're matching that whom you're seeing right in front of you with the concept that you've been handed. So my question is, why does that matter? What's so significant about Jesus being loving or sympathetic? This morning, we're going to look in this story and we're going to see how many came to believe because of how loving Jesus Christ is. It is the picture of what we need from God. And yet so many of us serve or give our attention or give our affection to worthless, powerless gods. Why would we? Why would we? Well, let's paint the picture from the text this morning so that in about 35 minutes, you're qualified to answer the question, why would you serve a particular God? So let's start with this idea this morning, a sympathetic God out of Hebrews 4, 14, 16. This isn't our main passage, but this is where we're going to start this morning because it fits so perfectly with what we're going to see in the text, in the story, the second half of the story of raising Lazarus. And so Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let's pray this morning that these words and the example of these words, the practical outworking for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and all those who were there on that day, that this story comes into our life and shows us the effectiveness of a loving God and the truth of a loving God. Father, this morning, we pray that You are exalted through Your Word. We pray that Your Spirit would reveal within our hearts those areas, those pockets where maybe we're lonely, maybe we are struggling, maybe we're angry, maybe... Maybe we're indifferent. Maybe we've given up. Maybe we're hopeless. Whatever it would be, Lord, we know that love is greater than all of these things. And so You chose to personify Yourself through love, through Your Son, Jesus. No greater love hath anyone than to lay down their life for their friends. This morning, God, Use this story and the power and the magnitude of this miracle for what it was intended to do. And use it in a supernatural way in our lives now, so far removed from this particular event, but not so far removed from the effects. To your glory, Lord. Amen. 
So point one is a sympathetic God. And as we look at this, we're going to advance. I got nothing here. Here we go. We're going to get going to the next slide as soon as we can. And your first question is a blank God. That is sympathetic God. Mary needed a sympathetic God. So this morning, as we look at the text, let's start in John eleven twenty eight through 44, shall we? And we're continuing on from where we left off last week. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, she being Martha, and saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. My brother would not have died. This morning, our first point is Mary needed a sympathetic God. So when we look to the passage in Hebrews chapter 4, and it says we have a high priest, he being Jesus, who is not unable, it's a double negative, who is not unable, in other words, he is able to sympathize with our troubles. Is that true? Where are you this morning? What are your troubles? What's your crisis? What's your difficulty? And do you need God to minister and care for you? You know, sometimes it's not just about, men. pay attention to this one, alright? Ladies, you can pay me later. Men, sometimes it's not about fixing the problem in the moment. Sometimes it's just about caring. Am I right, ladies? Sometimes it's just about caring. Jesus does both in this situation. And there's greater things at work that we will see. But you know, guys, sometimes it's just enough to care. To care. And when we have our crisis, whatever it is, we're going to see in this moment that Mary and Martha were ministered to first because Jesus loved them. And we'll see exactly how that unfolds and what that looks like. Mary is specific in sharing her disappointment. Before we get to that, the first point is Jesus wants us to come to Him. Jesus wants you and I to come to Him. Jesus requests that Mary come out. Martha had already gone. Martha had an interaction with Christ. He's already done this with Martha. And he's probably wondering, Martha, where's Mary? Why is she not here? He doesn't go to Mary, but He says, Martha, go. This is all implied in the text. Go, tell Mary I'm coming. I know you both desperately wanted me and I, and I had my interaction with you, but tell Mary because she's hurting, tell her to come to me. Come, bring her hurt, bring her anguish, bring her anger to me because I am going to minister to her. Jesus wants you to come with what it is that's burdening you. Go to Him. Go to Him. Secondly, 
Mary is specific in sharing her disappointment. Did you catch it? She didn't talk about the weather. She didn't talk about how was your trip. She didn't offer tea. She didn't talk politics. She didn't do any of that. She gets right into Jesus' face, and the very first thing she says is, What? Why weren't you here? If you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. How many of you have said that? Jesus, where are you? Where are you? If Jesus told you to come and you were going to have an audience with Him face to face, what would be your first words? The text gives you permission to lay it out there and be real. Do not sin in your anger, but be real. Because you can't hide anything from Him anyway. Be like Mary and just get it out. Just get it out. Mary is specific in sharing her disappointment with Jesus. Sometimes, you ever do this? You know exactly what you want from God. But you think, well, let's see, I need to exalt Him first. Um, I need to say my thank yous. Uh, I need to pray for others. And then, you know, I'll kind of get around to my issues. That's not bad. All those things are good things to invoke in our relationship with Christ. But can I just tell you, in the moment, when you're feeling it, be specific. Be specific with Jesus. Mary is specific. How has Jesus disappointed you? That's a tough question. I'm not going to talk about it. That's a rhetorical question for you to fill in the blank sometime today and then go to Christ over it. Go to Christ over it. Let's move to the second point this morning, the definition of a sympathetic God. We're going to pick it up in the next section of Scripture, starting in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus, what? Wept. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how He loved Him. See how He loved Him. But some of them said, could not He who opened the eyes of the blind men also have kept this man from dying? Isn't it interesting this miracle of the blind man has been resident now for about two and a half to three chapters? Whatever happened with that miracle was profound. And John keeps going back and back and back to it because it was profound within the landscape of what Jesus was doing at the time. Now this miracle, this miracle would change everything. The raising of Lazarus was the trump card. It was that which would truly show the power of God working through Jesus, verifying that He was His Son, verifying that He is who He says He is. But it would also be the determining factor, and we'll see in our last two verses. At that point, the high priest determined, we will kill Him. And Jesus knew it would do it. So Jesus, in the definition of a sympathetic God, Jesus was deeply moved. So as you're looking at point two, the definition of a sympathetic God, 
Jesus was deeply moved. We see it in verse 33. We also see it in verse 38. We're going to get to that eventually here in a little bit. Let me explain what deeply moved means. Deeply moved is not necessarily connected to this idea of Jesus, what? Wept. Now we're holding this in concept and we see a lot of weeping that's happening by people. We see a lot of weeping that's happening by Mary and Martha. This is different. This is almost the same word that's equated to when Jesus was filled with zeal for his father's house. Do you remember where this is? By the way, it's coming up again. He's going to clear the temple again, but he's already done it once. When he was so moved to turn over all of the tables of the cashiers, to grab a whip and drive out those that had turned his father's house into a place of commerce. He was moved because of taking that which is good and defiling it. So when we see this term here, when we see this statement that John gives us to help us understand the personality, the character, the attributes of Jesus, he was deeply moved. Look at the concept, and here's your three, three points. To be angry, disturbed, and troubled. To be angry, disturbed, and troubled. And then Jesus wept. There's no great secret to this. In doing a word study on it, it just means to cry, to wail. If you've never been at a funeral in the Middle East, you have no idea. If you have been at one of those funerals, then you start to understand what this means, what was going on. Here in the States, we're very composed. We're very somber. Again, we talk about the weather. We talk about moving on. We celebrate the life. And weeping is subdued. We put our little tissue boxes out at our services, our memorial services. Have you ever been in a memorial service or a funeral where there was just open wailing and weeping? Folks, the way that the story reads, this has been going on for days. Wailing, weeping. Now, if you've been in that scenario, that situation, you understand that there's a shared emotion there, right? If somebody in the midst of that is stoic and doesn't partake in that. They stand apart. They stand set apart. There's something different. You're left wondering, why is it that they don't share in this emotion? Did they not love this person as much as the others? And yet, when this text says that Jesus wept, what was the response of the crowd? They said, look at how He loved Him. Look at how He loved Him. Jesus wept. This is the same weeping that we see in Luke 19.41 as He's coming over the Mount of Olives and He's coming into the Passion Week. And He weeps over Jerusalem. He loved His people. But He knew that they would reject Him. They knew that He would reject Him. Today, maybe the best way that we can equate that is the state of Wisconsin weeping when their team loses. 
follow up some counseling for the state of Wisconsin. Jesus wept. This is an indicator of who he is. Next, casual observers comment on his what? His defining love. Remember, we're talking about the definition of a sympathetic God. That this is found in his response. His response. His response is appropriate to the moment. It ministers to those that are there. It is evidential of his love for Lazarus and for Martha and for Mary. When he enters into Jerusalem and he weeps over Jerusalem, it is an indicator of his love and his brokenness over his people. Can I just let you understand that Hebrews 4 tells us that that has not stopped? It's because Jesus walked among us that he understands, and we can look at him and we can say, We get him. We know him. Now, this attribute, this idea of Jesus weeping, we connect, right? Because he's more like us. We can grasp that. This is His humanity laid out for all to see. We do this. We get this. We don't have this picture of God weeping. But can I infer something a little different? I think because we are created in whose image? God's image. I think this issue of emotion, I think this issue of desire for sanctification and holiness of mourning over the effects of sin, of being heartfelt and moved, I think that is us imitating God. Not God imitating us. So, interestingly enough, as we are looking for that which we can worship, that the true God will stand up. The reason that we identify with this, that we want the One who loves to be the true God, is because in us is built something that God put there that's a spark of who He is. So when we see Jesus weep, we get it. We get it. And Hebrews 4 is saying to you and I today, because He was here, because He did this, you can know, I can know, that we have a God that is not unable to sympathize with our problems, with our difficulties, with our trials. Do not listen to the lie, my friends, that He doesn't care. Mary and Martha felt that way. So there's a, there's a nugget here, right? Mary and Martha felt that way. But there were greater things at work. There were greater things at work. Casual observers comment on His defining love. The world around us, when they see Christ through you, comment even today about His, devi- His defining love. Next. A loving God surely wouldn't let Lazarus die. This is the next reaction by the crowd, right? They said Jesus was able to heal the blind man. Why... Can He not take care of Lazarus? Isn't that interesting? That there was an expectation. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, this is over the top. You know, this ain't going to happen. You're, you're, talking about, you're now talking about raising somebody from the dead four days after they've been dead. I don't know that I would have had that expectation, but apparently there were those in the crowd that had enough faith that there is an expectation. And they're saying, 
you know, I, I see the love, I see his desire, but, you know, he did this impossible thing over here. If he truly loved him, couldn't he have... What's interesting is that, again, there is that essence that God has built into us that is our expectation for who God should be, the real God. Would the real God please stand up? And that's what they're saying here, right? Is that He has the power to do this. If He loved Him that much, why doesn't He bring Him back from the dead? Do we get to that point on occasion? Are we there now? Am I there now? What is it that I'm saying, boy, God, you could do this if you want to. That's a good place to be. Because it demonstrates our faith. It demonstrates our faith. The definition of a sympathetic God is one who in this picture, in this point in time, weeps. He weeps. He shows Himself as a loving God. He is defined by love. What are some reasons Jesus doesn't always do what we want? Based off of our last point, the crowd looks and says, hey, you know... that." Here he did the blind man, but you know he can't. He, why is he not raising Lazarus? So that predicates the question to you and I this morning: What are some reasons Jesus doesn't always do what we want in this particular situation? He's already revealed it to Martha that the greater good would happen. This is going to be a sign of who Jesus is, right? That the raising of someone who is dead, dead, dead—not like a day dead, not like two days dead, but four days dead—he's definitely dead. Dead is dead, and we're going to get to that in a second. that Jesus held off. Remember last week, He waited. He waited. And now Martha and Mary are really mad. But there are greater things at work. When we look at those things in our life and we're requesting God to show up and He doesn't show up on our timetable, it's frustrating. But my challenge to you and I is simply this. We have to look at the total picture of what God's trying to do. I will always look at it selfishly from my perspective, won't I? What is God trying to do through all of this? And what is the greater result in all of it? And rather than get caught in the periphery and get stuck at looking at the little things... Where is God at work and where is He going with all of this? God's total plan of redemption for man is always at stake. How many of us question about somebody passing away tragically and yet many come to the Lord because of that testimony? And if you had known, there was a youth pastor that recently died, was killed tragically, and at his memorial service, Hundreds came to know the Lord. And if you were to pull him back like Lazarus and say, okay, we can either have you resurrected in a timely fashion, or you can go on and go to heaven and be with the Lord, which you're going there anyway at some point in time. Your family will be taken care of, but now hundreds will come into the kingdom. You probably know the answer he's going to give, right? But that's not our perspective. Our perspective is, God, why did you take him away from us? He was a good guy. Why would you do that? Sometimes it's for the redemption of men. And who's that on? Is that on God? No. 
Here's the thing that we're learning is it is because of our stubbornness, because of our stiff necks, that God will go to great lengths to get our attention. And sometimes it takes tragedy to get our attention, doesn't it? That's not on Him. That's on us. That's on us. Oh, the tragedies that I have committed. I'm not going to tell you what they are, but oh, the tragedies. Protecting someone from future pain. I was talking with somebody last night from our congregation that just had a a tractor trailer stolen from in front of their house. Just got it. You know, it's probably like the, you know, Bago 5000. I don't know. I don't know what it was called. But really excited. And yet, they're just saying, God, your will. Your will be done. We were talking about this exact issue. Why would this happen? And sometimes... And I've known situations like this where the individual buys something and they held off driving it. They're really excited about it. They held off driving it and found out that there was a major mechanical problem. It got passed off. Actually, I'll just tell you, <laughs> it was our youth van at the last church I was at. You know, we, we had that van given to us to use for a period of time, and then it got passed on to another ministry in town, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, thanks a lot, Jesus. You know, we could use that van still. Now, what I didn't know is he had a beautiful three-year-old 15-passenger van waiting next month for me. And that next month, that van caught on fire on the 5 freeway with a bunch of youth. And thank God they all got out, but it melted to the ground on the 5 freeway. Now, where was my attitude the month before? (laughs) Sometimes God's protecting us from future pain. And that's why it doesn't happen the way we want it to happen. That's all by love. Sometimes it's because creation is affected by sin. Don't get past the sin factor. That's why Jesus was deeply troubled, by the way. It's because of the sin factor. He's looking and he's seeing what's going on and he's saying this is unnecessary, but it is necessary. Why is it necessary? Because of the ramifications of sin. And unless we go to this length, people are going to perish in their sin. Sometimes this is a time of testing and trials. Many of you are familiar with James chapter 1. Consider it pure what? Joy, my friends. When you go through trials or temptations of many kinds it is there so that the perseverance of your faith may be strengthened what are some ideas about why jesus wept we don't know for sure we can only speculate the value of it is that we know jesus did weep and it had a profound effect on those that were watching but let me run by a few things things that are possibilities Jesus wept in sympathy for the ones He loved who were grieving. Jesus wept for all people who grieve over the death of loved ones. Jesus wept over the frailty of life and the ravages of sin and despair. Jesus wept in anger over those present who reminded or who remained in unbelief in the face of death. Jesus wept in sorrow for having to call Lazarus back from eternity into a world where he would die again. Now, we don't know that that's why Jesus wept, but those are all possibilities, aren't they? This morning, as we're looking at who, 
who the real God is. How do you define that real God? The definition of a sympathetic God is found is found in a loving God. Let's look at the ability of a sympathetic God, shall we? Continue in the Scripture in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Remember, I told you it was coming. And this idea of being deeply moved again means He was angry. He was troubled. He was frustrated. He comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard Me. I knew that You always hear Me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that You sent Me. When He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Our first point as we look at this passage is simply dead is dead. We're looking at the ability of a sympathetic God. If you're going to figure out which one is truly God, let's look at the ability of And so let's look at the issue of what we're dealing with. Dead is dead. There's no trickery going on here. You know, how do we know he's dead? Look at this statement where where Martha says this. It's kind of like an eighth grade PE teacher, right? Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. Not four days, but four days in the arid and dry landscape of palestine decomposition happens quickly now he had been bound he had been prepared for decomposition actually in in ancient um in the in the ancient world and in the middle east they had a a incredible uh scientific process So that the body would decompose quickly. And then the ultimate was once all the flesh had and everything was just but only bones left, they would then take the bones and put them in what's called an ossuary. And then that sometimes was even in the house, kind of like how we have a a, a, a urn sometimes with ashes. But most of the time it was put into a common family burial place. So decomposition happened quickly. How many of you can relate to Don't go in that room. Laundry hasn't been done for two weeks. Whatever it is. Right? She's saying dead is dead. Dead is so dead that if you open that stone, we're going to gag. Takes me back to my bachelor days. Of which we're moving on. We won't talk about that. But dead is dead. The, rem- the reminder of a promise, why do you doubt? Jesus' response to Martha and to Mary is, why do you doubt? Verse 40, the question is there for you and I this morning. He's reminding them of a promise. He said, I will bring Lazarus back. Open the cave. 
Jesus didn't want to open a cave just to smell a decomposing body. He's going to do some business. And so what happens? Doubt comes in. Now watch this. Doubt comes in to the very people that are angry at Jesus and are asking that He would what? Raise Lazarus from the dead. Oh, our humanity. I'm guilty. I am guilty. I am guilty. I have requested things from Christ and He has answered those things, those impossibilities. And the very next day, I will start stressing about the very same thing. Saying, Jesus, oh, this is huge. <laughs> this is huge. I'm really going to... I, You know, this is... I don't think Jesus is going to do this. I don't think, I don't think this is... We have that cycle, don't we? Even Mary and Martha had the cycle. But Jesus takes them back to what? A promise. A promise. Can I recommend that you go back to the words of Christ? That when He says He's going to do something, He will do it. And lie in that. Bathe in that. Hope in that. Why do you doubt? The trick is revealed. Jesus reveals by whose power this is done. Did you catch that? By whose power is this done? The Father's. And here's an interesting aspect of it. Look in verse, say, 42. Well, let's go back to 41 just so we get the context, right? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up His eyes. I think this is why we pray to heaven, right? We look up because I'm thinking, okay, the Holy Spirit and Jesus and God is all around us. So, you know, why do I always look to heaven? And here I found my answer. I'm growing so much spiritually. It's great. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have, what? Heard me. So Jesus has requested from the Father. Think he's setting a pattern for us? Absolutely he has. But Jesus is trying to determine for everybody that this is coming from the Father because his audience loves whom? The Father. And they're trying to make the connection to Jesus being of the Father, and that's why this is flowing this way. And how do we know this? Because of the next statement. Watch this. This is great. Would the real God please stand up? He says in verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, so you know I, I don't have to say this out loud so that you can hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Have you ever had people pray that way? You know, they kind of know your issues. And you're doing a general prayer time in a small group, maybe. <sighs> Let's just go for broke. Maybe it's the pastor. And you reveal some things. And so in his eloquent prayers, he just starts praying. And you're like, why is he saying all my dirt in front of everybody? Oh, no, no. We're not, we're not being specific. I'm not naming you. We know who we're talking about. Jesus says this so that those around would hear and would make the connection that all of this is coming from the Father. All of this is coming from the Father. The resurrection is always more important than death. The resurrection is always more important than death. This is an interesting thing that I came across this past week in uh, one of the journals that I read and, and look to. And that's this. That healthy churches preach the resurrection. Many, many churches, many people focus on the cross, and that's appropriate. But folks, if 
this is all that happens, is there any power behind what we believe in? Nothing. And we don't focus enough on the resurrection. This is incredible. This is miraculous. So the ability of a sympathetic God? Would the real God please stand up? Jesus uses resurrection, which is impossible. It only comes from the power of God to demonstrate who He is. So why do we doubt? We shouldn't doubt when we look at the ability of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't doubt. As we continue on, the last point today is this. And many believed. Verse 45. And then let's look at 46. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, what? Believed in Him. Now here's the part that we just look to and say, Really? Really? But I want you to be challenged this morning by the four or five points I bring here, sub-points under this. You're going to look at this next verse and you're going to say, how could that have happened? But we're going to put you to the test this morning. What does belief look like? Verse 46 says this, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, I'm reading that as a negative. It could be read as a positive, right? That the Pharisees obviously were still against Jesus, so maybe they're going to say, you know, you really should check this guy out. He's incredible. I don't think that's what is implied here. The Pharisees had a bounty out on Jesus' head, so when he came close, they knew. So they had spies and people of of the Pharisaical court and officers of, of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin that would have been there. And those individuals who this was a threat, and you'll see it next week, they ran back to the Pharisees and told them, narked them out, tattletailed, this is what Jesus just did. And it throws everybody into mayhem. It actually galvanizes evilness. Isn't that fascinating? That we can be such a stubborn people in our sin that when something miraculous and beautiful and loving happens like this in this moment, that the reaction by some is to become so angry and so spiteful and so bitter that they're willing to kill to shut it down. Folks, when it comes to God, the real God, there will be opposition because sin is in opposition to the all-powerful God. But many believe. So this morning, let me run you through this. As we look at these questions or these points of view, belief means, number one, that you don't argue. Right? Remember that Jesus said to Mary and to Martha, why do you doubt? Here they beg Him to raise Lazarus. He says, remove the stone. And they say to Him, what? Oh, are you kidding me? Oh, We don't have medical masks out here, Jesus. This isn't going to go well. By the way, the way that it it says, it says Lazarus come out. And as Lazarus came out, it says that his feet were bound and his hands were bound. He would not have been able to walk. So get that visual. I don't know what it looked like, but I get this visual that he kind of levitated out of the cave. Okay, and just came because then he had to instruct those around 
unbind him so he can walk. Galatians 5.1 says this, you were set free in Christ. You are no longer bound. Amen? So unbind him. Unbind yourself. Don't argue. That's one of the indicators of true belief. You just don't argue. You get it. And even if you don't get it, based off the character, based off the ability, based off the definition, based off of the love, you are willing to follow that. Because sometimes it's not always going to make sense. But he has a proven track record. And that real God is standing up. Belief means that you're changed. This is one of the indicators that should inform the first part. Because I see the change in me, and many of you, we've talked, we've had that conversation even this week. I've seen the change in my life, which is evidential to Jesus working in me. It was only Christ that could have done this. I have been resurrected. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. I've been changed. When nobody else, nothing else could have done that for me. Belief looks like that. Belief looks like change. Belief means dedication and commitment. You see, those that believed then did what? They followed Him. They followed Him. Doesn't mean that they didn't struggle. We don't have a big crowd standing before the cross when He's been put upon the cross and it looks like the end is here. But the crowd sure came back in throngs and in multiples after the resurrection. Belief means comfort in times when it's most needed by a sympathetic God. Where are you this morning? What do you need from Jesus? Can I just tell you that I'm so impressed that the number one thing about Jesus is that He loves. Is that He loves. Because in my deepest moments, that's truly what I need from Christ. That's what I need from God. So I got three gods sitting there. Jesus, Moloch, Baal. And I've asked the questions and I hear that Jesus wept. I'm picking Jesus. I'm picking Jesus. I believe. Because that, by everything that's been put in me, that divine spark tells me that's who God should be. That's who God should be. This morning as we close, what is it that has spoken to you this morning? Use it. Don't just sit here to fill in the blanks. The Word of God is there to inform us, to change our lives, and to bring us closer in relationship to God. So as He has revealed Himself through a story that happened thousands of years ago, it is for your benefit that you may what? That you may believe. Know that you have a loving God. 
Let me ask the men to prepare this morning to take our offering and the worship team is going to come close us in a song. Oh, how He loves us. That's not the song we're singing. But remember, one of these points is that belief means dedication and commitment. The song that we're closing with today speaks to this idea of dedication and commitment. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to give you ample opportunity to get committed, to get involved, to practice love, to practice the community. Do you know that one of the major components, the glue that happens within a church is relationship, community, feeling tied in, feeling what? Feeling loved. Because love can overlook a multitude of wrongs. And we all know that we do things that are just wrong. We bump off each other like little mitochondria spazzing out. And every once in a while there's some bruising that goes on. But because of love, we can overlook those things. Can I encourage you? This is a shameless plug. Now watch how I just segue right into this. Don't just come and sit on a Sunday. I commend you for being here. Great job. Come back next Sunday. Or if you're visiting and you're from another place, make sure you're in your own service. Bring somebody who needs to be loved. There's some dedication and commitment. Get involved in a life group so that we can be blessed to know you. You can love on us. We can love you. That's how we do that here at the next level. If you feel un- <coughs> excuse me, unconnected, and you're looking for that love, you're looking for that relationship, get involved in a life group. Go out to the kiosk. Sign up. We have two on Tuesdays, one on Monday. Get involved. Reach out to somebody that's next to you. Care. As we leave today, we have food over in the fireside. Spend some time fellowshipping with each other, encouraging, loving on one another, praying for each other. God bless you for being here and know that the real God has stood up and He's been defined by love. He's been defined by love. Let me pray over our offering this morning. God, we give all of this to You. We give it as an extension of our love back to You. We do it because You have first loved us. I thank You that You are defined by love. There are so many religions, Father, that their God, their deity is one that is defined by fear, is defined by um, uh, being submissive to it, is defined by needing to pacify their God so that they don't experience the wrath. Or their God is ambivalent. And it's just a process, and it's just a mechanical thing, and it's. Or their God is selfish. Lord, I thank You that the qualities that define You start with love. So, receive a gift from us because You first loved us. Use it, multiply it for Your effectiveness. Bless the giver. To Your glory, Father. Amen.